You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon this morning comes from Exodus chapters 32 through 34. Our reading will cover a few chunks in 32 and then 34. You can follow along on the screen. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and got up to party. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger can burn against them, and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he had said he would bring on his people. Now chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere near the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning. And taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. And the Lord responded, Look, I am making a covenant, 
In the presence of all your people, I will perform wonders that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work. For what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning, King's Cross Church. It's a joy to, to be together this morning. Um, I think you guys all know me. I'm Aaron, one of the pastors here. Uh, this is a bad week to have the name Aaron. So we uh, see in this passage. Um, but we see that the Lord is, is gracious to that Aaron, and I pray that he's gracious to this Aaron too. Um, if you don't have a, a Bible, I encourage you to, to grab one. We're going to be in a, a lot of text this week, flipping back and forth. I try to put you know a good bit of it on the screen, but... Um, Sometimes it just didn't, didn't fit, didn't make sense. So if you're able to follow along in your Bible, that, that would be great. Um, this is, you know, this is a tough passage, right? So Exodus 32, we see just clear sin, clear idolatry from the Israelites, right? They, they make this golden calf. But it's also a comforting passage because, um, because of chapter 34, we see, as, uh, as Nate just read, you know, the Lord is gracious and, and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. So chapter 32, you know, we see that our, our sins, the Israelites' sins are, are many. You know, I, I titled this sermon, our, our sins there are many, his mercy is more. Chapter 33 is kind of this interlude, you know, between, you know, the, the relationship between God and the Israelites has been tainted, has been harmed. And so it's kind of this, the Israelites are, are wondering are they ever going to get back to the way things were? It's kind of this intermission, interlude, intercession from Moses. And chapter 34 is a, is a beautiful answer to, to that prayer, that, that there is mercy in the Lord. There is opportunity for their relationship to be made whole again, to be reconciled. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So that's kind of my main idea for us today, that there's no sin so great that it overrides the compassion, grace, and faithful love of the Lord. So we get into chapter 32. Um, it's kind of broken up into, into three parts. So the first one is just a, a distortion of worship, the way that the Israelites are, have twisted you know, the instructions that the Lord has given them. And then we see a divergence of, of leadership. You know, we, we compare Moses as the way that he leads the people versus Aaron and the way that he fails in his leadership. And then we see a display of, of God's judgment. So verses one through six, a distortion of, of worship. Verse one, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us so we'll go down before us. Because this Moses... The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So the first thing we see from the Israelites here, the, what kind of leads them into their sin is, is that they doubt God. They doubt his plan. They doubt his goodness. You know, Moses left to go up to the mountain in, in chapter 24, and, um, you know, he said, stay here, I'll come back. The people began to doubt. And Moses had been gone a long time. They didn't know if they could trust God. They didn't know if they could trust Moses to come back. So they began to doubt. And similar to us in the way that we sin, as they began to doubt, they began to, you know, fill in those gaps themselves, right? They began to do things their way. They said, make gods for us, Israeli. And then they said, Israel, these are, are your gods that you brought up from the land of Egypt. So they decided that they knew better than, than God, what God was, right? They, they talked about this golden calf being being God. These are the gods that brought you up from the land of Egypt. They wanted a God that, that was right in front of them to worship, one that they could worship on their terms that would tell them what they could do, right, and not, not put limits on them that they didn't want. Another, another way that they do things their way, they attribute, you know, what, what God had done for them to this chunk of metal. Right, they said, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. 
They know that it wasn't up to them that they came out of Egypt. They needed help. And instead of attributing it to Yahweh, they attributed it to this calf. They didn't appreciate what God had done. You know, verses 2 to 4, Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, sons, daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into the image of a calf. Remember, earlier in Exodus, we know where this gold came from. Right? It came from the Egyptians as they plundered them. Right? The Israelites, they were slaves a few months ago. They didn't have a whole bunch of gold stocked away. The Lord had showed his power so clearly in the plagues and in overpowering the Egyptian gods, overpowering Pharaoh. And instead of appreciating that, instead of worshiping God with that, they took it and they made an idol out of it. When Aaron saw this, this is verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it, made an announcement, there will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. People sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to party. These people are, are worshiping. They're having a, a festival. They're having a party. They're offering burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they're doing it to this idol. They're not doing it to the Lord. There's some discussion about whether or not, you know, they, which commandment they broke. You know, was it the first commandment that they were worshiping another god, or was it the second commandment that they made an image trying to make it to represent Yahweh? You know, verse 5, it says, there's, Aaron says, this will be a festival to the Lord, to Yahweh. And so it could be that they are worshiping the Lord, worshiping Yahweh. They're just doing it in the wrong way. Or it could be that, you know, they've made, tried to make a different god, tried to worship other gods. Either way, you know, what they're doing is, is sinful. It's a distortion of what God has called them to do. Last week, Patrick, as he was, you know, explaining the, the tabernacle to us, he talked about how it's a new creation, a new Eden, right? And just like in Eden when I, with Adam and Eve, you know, here's this wonderful garden. You can do whatever you want except don't eat the fruit from this tree. And God with the Israelites, here's this wonderful way of, of worshiping me, of, of being my people. Just follow these commands. And both times, they fell short. Yeah, so the Israelites, first they began to doubt God. Then they began to, you know, worship how they wanted to. And that includes falling into this familiar pattern of sin. Remember that they were in Egypt just a few months prior to this. They, uh, they had seen their whole lives having a visible God to worship. Right, you guys can probably, um, probably have some images in your mind of what Egyptians God, Egyptian gods looked like. Um, and so the Israelites had, had seen this their entire lives and in a moment of doubt, in a moment of stress, in a moment of pride and selfishness, they began to fall into a pattern that they had been in for so long. We've seen throughout Exodus, again and again, the people doubt God's plan. They, they doubt whether God is going to be good to them. They grumble and complain. They don't think that God is providing for them like he should. And they fall back into the pattern of, of worshiping idols. It's easy, you know, for us to, to kind of pile on the Israelites to think they're ridiculous. You know, I even said it a couple weeks ago and in our gospel community group, I, um, it, it's amazing to me that, that the Israelites would go and they would pick up manna off the ground to eat and they would still fall into worshiping idols. Like every day, there's food for them and still they, they doubt, they sin. But we do the same kind of thing. Right, it's easy for us to, to see why they would doubt like Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days, right? If one of you guys says, I'm going to go climb that mountain and you're gone for 40 days, I'm going to be worried about you. <laughs> That's a long time to be on a mountain. <laughs> and just like the Israelites, when we are in times of stress 
of unknown, of fear, we fall back into our familiar patterns of sin, right? So this golden calf story, you know, it's not just about them. Like, it, it helps us see the anatomy of our sin. How do we fall into our patterns of sin? What idols do, do we worship? You know, we're not making images of gold, mostly, but, um, but we do have our own idols. We follow this, the same path, right? We begin to doubt God. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the, the first sin, the, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any garden of the tree or any tree of the garden? A lot of times we begin to have those thoughts. Did God really say? Does God really say that I, I shouldn't get divorced? I'm not happy in my marriage. Right? Does God really say that homosexuality is wrong? He made me attracted to people of the same sex. We have to trust that God's way is better than our way. And so we begin to fall in patterns of sin when, when we do things our way. First, we doubt God. Did God really say, did he really mean this? Can I really trust this Bible, this word? When we start to doubt, we start to distort him and his word. We start assuming that God thinks like we do and that God's way is, is our way. Even, you know, this, this past week on social media, I saw, you know, extreme versions on, on both sides of, of people assuming that God thinks that they do, the way that they do. You can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. It's better to abort a brown child than to have them raised as a white evangelical. These are clear distortions of people thinking that God is in their image instead of them being conformed to God's image. So most of us wouldn't fall into one of those, but what do we fall into? Right, what distortions of God word, God's word do we make? Right, maybe we try to, to be culturally relevant by filling our minds with stuff that we shouldn't. Or we're watching shows that we shouldn't or spending too much time paying attention to sports so that you can, you know, have something in common with your coworkers. Maybe you're, you're twisting the way that you're spending your time. Maybe you care too much about your appearance because of what you see on social media or what you are trying to portray of yourself. Maybe you neglect caring for the poor because you think you'll just put that off later until once you have enough money saved or once your house is renovated or your 401k is full or whatever. Maybe you let your fear of man prevent you from sharing the gospel with your neighbors and coworkers. Maybe you're worried about yourself in that. What are they going to think of me? Instead of trusting God and following his way, even when it's hard, we distort we do things that we want to do. The term stiff-necked that's, that's used of the Israelites a few times here, I think that's helpful. You know, it comes from, um, from like oxen or, or donkeys when they're trying to put a yoke on, on the ox, and the donkey, and it's stiff-necked. It won't, let, it won't bend its neck for the yoke to go on. That's a good term for us when we don't let, don't let ourselves put on Christ's yoke. We reference that, that verse a lot. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, you know, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have to realize that, that Jesus' yoke, God's yoke is good for us. Right? His way is better than our way. So we, we doubt God we begin to make him into our image. We think that our way is better and we fall into familiar patterns of sin. Right? How often do we have sins that we continually fall back into? We consistently struggle with. Have you been patient with your kids all week and then in a moment of stress you, you lose it in anger again? Have you been working hard and, and, and 
doing good work at your job and then you fall into this pattern of procrastination and not doing your best work. Maybe you get sucked up into, you know, some pattern of, of wasting time that you had been doing good in. Instead of feeling distraught or defeated in that, we, we need to come to Christ. We need to know that there's forgiveness available for that. We need to repent of that sin, acknowledge that it is sin, but also look for the pattern. Look for the, the root of the sin. How did you come into this? Right? Remember the Israelites, they were in Egypt. Everything they had seen was, was creating visible gods to worship. And so is there a, a pattern or habit that leads you into sin? You know, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, What is the source and war, of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. There's a deeper source to so much of our sin. What is the root of it? Are you coveting something that, that you don't have? Are your expectations off? Do you expect for something to happen and, and you always get angry when it doesn't happen? Our bodies are so interconnected and, and designed that a lot of times we fall into patterns of sin when we're not living healthy, right? We're not sleeping enough, we're not eating right, we're not exercising. That makes our self-control, you know, stronger or weaker. Identify these, the patterns, the, the roots in your life that, that lead you into this sin. There's a reason that things like Alcoholics Anonymous or, or rehab, they try to pull you out of your previous community, out of your previous habits. Because a lot of times we tie things together. There's this, <clears throat> this commercial about quitting smoking where a guy, you know, he's outside and he smokes and then just d- this delivery truck stops and he jumps in the delivery truck and starts driving. And they're pointing out the, the, kind of the craziness of, of linking things together. Like, so instead of, they say, you know, you don't have to drive every time you smoke. So why do you have to smoke every time you drive? They're tying those things together. And so what, in our hearts, what do we tie in with sin? And can we stop doing that so that we stop doing the sin? So let's think deeply about how our sin builds, what the roots are, how it takes hold, what habits lead us into those sins. As part of the, the church, let's do that together. Right? If you identify those, those things in your life, share that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Encourage one another to, to form better habits. Right? So don't, to stop the pattern before it gets into sin. So moving on to the next section, a, a divergence of, of leadership. Right, we saw the distortion of worship, how we, um, how we fall into these patterns of sin. We also see this contrast of, of leadership. You know, Aaron leads poorly, but Moses leads well. Throughout this passage, one of the, the clearest strengths of, of Moses as a leader is the way that he intercedes for the people. Right, he is constantly praying for them, praying on their behalf five times in this passage. Right, chapter 32, 11 to 14, and down in 30 to 32. Chapter 3, 12 to 18. Chapter 34, verse 9, and 29 through 35. Right here, this first one, chapter 32, 11 to 14. Moses saw the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt? with great power and a strong hand. Why should the Egyptians say, he brought them out with evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. So Moses, Moses intercedes here with, with three arguments. Right? He says, 
that these are God's people. These are your people that you brought out of Egypt. It's kind of funny in, in verse 7, as the Lord is um, explaining to Moses what is, what is happening down there, he says, your people you brought out from the land of Egypt have added, acted corruptly. So the Lord says to Moses, your people, and then Moses says to God, your people. The kids and I and our, our family just too. Um, we watched part of, the, part of the Lion King on um, Friday. Simba comes up to, to Mufasa early in the morning, and he says, Dad, let's go. I have plans to, Mufasa's gonna show him the kingdom. And Sarabi says, your son is here. And Mufasa says, before sunrise, he's your son. Right, so there's this back and forth of, I'm not taking credit for, for that. Right, that, that's your son. That's your, these are your people. But Moses is right. These are God's people. You've invested so much in these people. You showed your power so clearly to the Egyptians. You brought them out. Some of you guys that are looking for houses, you know about due diligence? If you get an offer accepted and your due diligence is at stake, you've invested so much in this house already. So these are, are God's people that he's invested in. Moses also you know, points out that God's reputation is at stake. Um, yeah, verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out, of the, out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Right, you made it so clear to the Egyptians with your power, these are your people. I told Pharaoh so many times, this is your people. Right, your reputation is at stake. What would it mean if you wiped all these people out? And the third way that, that Moses intercedes is, is that he reminds God of the, the promise. Right, he says, remember your promise to Abraham. Verse 13, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. These are God's people. God's reputation is at stake, and God has promised. And so God relents. Another beautiful picture of Moses' leadership is the way that he takes ownership for the people. He links himself with them. So verse 32 31. These people have committed a grave sin. They've made a god of gold for themselves. If you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book that you've written. Right? He's, he's acknowledging the, the sin that the people have done, but he's, he's putting himself with them. If you can't forgive them, God, take me out of your book. Don't, don't forgive me either, basically. So Moses leads the people well. And Aaron kind of falls on his face. All right, so leadership lesson for us. Look at what Aaron does in this passage and, and do the opposite, All right? So verse one, we'll just look at, look at a few examples of, of what Aaron does. Verse one, he doesn't push back at all, All right? The people gathered against Aaron. They said, come make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron says, okay. Take off the gold rings that are on your ears. He doesn't push back at all. Down in verse 22, right after Moses comes to confront him, instead of accepting that, he pushes back on Moses. Right? He says, don't be enraged, my Lord. Right? He doesn't, doesn't accept Moses' confrontation. Right? He pushes back on him. He blame shifts against the Israelites. He said, you know, these Israelites, they're so terrible. You yourself know these people are intent on evil. And then he minimized his, his sin. Verse 24. I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. They gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Compare that to verse 4. Right? He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into the image of the calf. Aaron sounds ridiculous. Threw the gold in, the fire, and out came the scab. Moses says, or verse 25, Moses saw that the people were out of control for Aaron had let them get out of control, making them a laughing stock to their enemies. So Aaron could have done things 
very differently. You know, he could have pushed back. He could have taken responsibility. could have taken ownership. He could have gotten outside counsel. Right back in chapter 24, you know, before Moses goes up on the mountain, he says, here are Aaron and her. Come to them if you have any problems. And so Aaron could have gone to her. Like he could have gone to the other Israelite elders. Sometimes, or some of the commentators try to give Aaron a little little grace here. You know, verse, verse one, where it says they gathered around Aaron that, you know, could be a little more antagonistic. They gathered against Aaron. Maybe Aaron feared for his life. And maybe, you know, when he says in verse five, there'll be a festival to the Lord, maybe he's trying to, you know, make the best of a bad situation, trying to turn this idolatry back towards the Lord. Even if that's the case, I think, I think the way that verse 21 is, is phrased, the way that Moses confronts Aaron, I think it's helpful. You know, he says, what did these people do to you that you've led them in, into such a grave sin? Right, there is an external effect. Right? What do these people do to you? He's acknowledging that, that something has happened, something has led to this, but he's not, not taking Aaron away from his responsibility. Right? What do these people do that you have led them into such a grave sin? I think we should follow that pattern as we have opportunities to, to lead people out of, out of their sin, to lead people through repentance. Acknowledge that there's outside factors that, that push in this direction, but don't minimize responsibility. And remember as we have opportunities to, to lead, remember that we represent the Lord. Right, as we talked about in the Ten Commandments a couple weeks ago. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Don't carry his name poorly. As we represent him, as we have God's stamp on us, remember that. And as we lead other people, take responsibility to lead them to follow the Lord. I'm praying that, that I do that as, as I help lead King's Cross, this church. I pray that I lead us to, to represent God's name well. So Aaron fails, the people fail, their sin, it leads to judgment. We see here, verse 26 to 29, you know, the wages of sin is death. Right, Moses brings the, the Levites that are for God, and the Levites gathered around him. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Every man fasten a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. This isn't, you know, a random act of violence. It's not just run through the camp, swinging your sword, and whoever it hits dies. It's not like that. The wording and go back and forth throughout the camp, that's it's kind of a, a scoping out, like go throughout the camp, identify those who are still idolatrous, those who are still against me, and they're worthy of death, even if they are your friend, your brother, your neighbor. Verse 35, we see there's a, a plague on the people too. So as they, as they went throughout the camp, 3,000 people died, and then there's still a plague Verse 35, the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. We see that the, the sin of the people is, is so costly. It's better for Israel to kill those who are idolatrous than to let them roam and influence the rest of the people. I think of Galatians 5, 9, you know, kind of famous New Testament phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. In Galatians, Paul's angry against the Judaizers who, you know, they say you have to follow Jewish customs to be a Christian. You have to also be circumcised. Follow Jesus and do this. And if we, if we start to crack open that door of like follow Jesus and something, then everything is ruined. All right, Jesus plus nothing is everything. And Jesus plus anything is nothing. Only the gospel. That's our only hope. 
And so we see the, the weight of sin, the wages of sin is, is death, and realize that there's nothing too costly to fight our sin. As Moses came down the mountain in verse 19, he approached the camp, he saw the dancing, he became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. These are the tablets that God wrote on. Or God's handwriting was on these tablets. This is the most valuable thing in the world. And Moses smashed it. And he's not rebuked for that. The people had already destroyed the covenant that was represented on this. Another thing in here, Moses takes the, the gold from the, from the idol, he grinds it up into powder and he pours it over the water and has the Israelites drink it. This gold, it's not, they can't reuse it, right? This gold is ruined because you used it to, to worship an idol. So this gold, the Israelites consumed it and it came out in waste. There's nothing too costly to fight our sin. So as you identify those, those patterns that lead you into sin, the, anything that you have in your life that, that leads you into sin, do what it takes to fight that sin, to be sanctified before the Lord. If you use your smartphone to look at pornography, you don't need a smartphone. Get a dumb phone. Get a phone that can talk and text. That's it. If you need a smartphone for work, have a friend set passwords for any apps that give you access that you shouldn't have. Do what it takes to fight sin. If your social media causes you to sin, maybe you swell with pride because you think you look good to the world, or maybe you, you know, shrink with, with shame because you don't feel like you're matching up to some outside ideal, you don't need social media accounts. If your job leads you to working out of selfish ambition for worldly gain, you can find another job. Jesus gives us so clearly, if, you're, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Do whatever it takes to fight your sin. But fight it with the power of the gospel, not in your own strength. <clears throat> so chapter 32 big sin our sins are many a lot of weight the Israelites have tainted their relationship with, a God, with God and chapter 33 is kind of this interlude this intermission so we, we see this distant relationship between the um Israelites and, and God. So verse, first six verses, <clears throat> we see that the Israelites stop wearing their jewelry as a sign of mourning. So verse, beginning in chapter 33, Mo, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up from here, you and the people that you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and drive you out. We'll drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. <clears throat> go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you, because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and they didn't put on the jewelry. So this, you know, it's, it's not necessarily textually tied to the fact that they used this jewelry to, to make the idol, but it's still a sign of the way their relationship has been tainted. Right, God says, take off your jewelry and I will decide what to do with you. Like God is, his anger is, is so raw to the people. Maybe you got in trouble when you were a kid and, and your parents said, go to your room, I'll decide what to do with you. Like they can't even, they're so mad they can't even come up with a punishment right now. Verse six, it says they didn't wear the jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. We don't know how far that onward goes. It, it could be that they didn't wear jewelry again until the promised land for 40 years. 
So that's a visible sign of their distant relationship. Another visible sign is, is the way that the tent is now outside the camp. Verse seven, Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. So what I want to draw out here, there starts to be this, this inkling of, of hope here. You know, the, the Lord is still close enough to be consulted, and anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting. But there's a new cost to it. Like, God's not in the center of the camp. He's outside the camp. So you have to go to a distance to meet with the Lord. We see in verse 10 that the Israelites are, are starting to worship the Lord again. You know, they, as the people saw the pillar of the cloud remaining at the entrance of the tent, they would stand up and they would bow and worship each one at the door of his tent. So you can imagine them seeing off in the distance the pillar of cloud and they're standing at their tent and they're worshiping God. This is a big turn from the last chapter where they were worshiping this idol. So there's this distant relationship and then Moses makes a a desperate plea to the Lord. There's still this, this tension of, you know, will things get back to the way they were? And Moses intercedes. We see that, that Moses pleads on, on his own behalf. He pleads on the people's behalf. And then he pleads to, to see God's glory. So verses 12 through 14, you know, look, you've told me, lead this people up, but you, won't, you haven't let me know who you'll send with me. He said, I know you by name. You've found favor with me. If I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways and I'll know you. So God said to him, he, he answered the prayer, yes, like my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. In verse 14, where it says you there, it's, it's a singular you. I'll give you, Moses, rest. I will, my presence will go with you. <clears throat> and Moses, he knows that God needs to go with the people too, not just him. So that's his prayer in, in 15 to 17. Right, how, will, <clears throat> how will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? God says, I will do this very thing that you have asked. For you have found favor with me and I know you by name. What a beautiful answer to prayer. I will do this very thing that you asked. Have you ever seen that in your life? You, you pray for something very specific and you see the Lord answer it very specifically. Kind of do a double take on, did, is that real? Did I really pray that? So Moses continues to, to lead his people well, continues to identify with them. He doesn't, he's not selfish in this. All right, he, he, God answers his prayer that he will go with the people. And Moses is emboldened here. You said yes to these things, so show me your glory. Verse 18. Then verse 19 God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The way that, you know, God describes his glory here isn't what we usually think of. You know, we usually think of big, bright lights, loud noises, amazingness, but God points to his character. And so that's what we see going into chapter 34, where we see that, that God shows his, his glory in, in his character as he is gracious and compassionate, as he heals the relationship. All right, his, his mercy is more. He demonstrates his, his glory by repairing their relationship kind of systematically throughout this. So verses one through four of chapter 34, God replaces the tablets at these tablets that were smashed. Cut these two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were written on the first tablets which you broke. Verse four, Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up in the mer- early in the morning, taking the two stone tablets, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. So God is willing to remake those tablets that were smashed 
He writes the same things on them. It's not, he hasn't changed. And God also repeats his, his character. Verses five through nine. He's restoring their relationship by reminding Moses who he is. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. So God repeats his name. You know, the, the scene at the burning bush where God reveals his name is, is iconic. And he, he does it again here. I am. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And then he, he shares about who he is. Right, these verses in, in 5 through 9, these are um, referenced like more often than any other verses throughout the Old Old Testament, right? The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. One of Jesus' most visible characteristics is his compassion, right? He weeps for Jerusalem right before he's going in there to, to be crucified. He weeps for them. He has compassion on them. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord is so gracious and slow to anger, He's abounding in faithful love. Above and beyond all that we can ask or think. He maintains faithful love. He forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he's also just. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Right, this, the sin that the Israelites did so clearly, the sin that we do so clearly, there's a cost to it. But God in his, in his love for us, he, he makes a way for us to be restored. Right? So the, the next section, he renews the covenant with them. Verse 10, the Lord responded, Look, I am making a covenant. I will perform wonders in the presence of all the people that have never been done in the whole earth or any nation. All the people you live along, among will see the Lord's work. For what I am doing is awe-inspiring. It's kind of crazy for us as we've studied through Exodus to hear that you know, there, there's going to be wonders that have never been seen before. We've seen amazing wonders. Right? The, the plagues, the burning bush, spreading of the Red Sea. But this new covenant that God makes with Israelites is is awe-inspiring. One other thing I want to note, even though Aaron failed so badly, God also restored his relationship with him. Later in the book, in Exodus 40, he says, clothe Aaron with holy garments, anoint him, consecrate him, so that he can serve me as priest. So even though Aaron failed, he's still the high priest. God is able to forgive him and restore him and renew his covenant with with him. In the last few verses, we have a, a reinstated representative. So back at the beginning, chapter 32, the people doubted Moses. They saw that Moses was delayed, began to, to doubt God, doubt Moses. And God clearly shows through this, this crazy scene here that Moses is, is his person. Right, his face shone. He didn't realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. And what I want to point out here is, is when God is, or when Moses is, is representing God when he's relaying the words, his veil is up and his face is, is shining as he's giving the, um, giving the law, giving the commands that God has given him. And then when he's done, then he covers his, his face. All right, so verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put the veil over his face. And so, as we read in, in 2 Corinthians 3, 
Like that, that God wants to reveal himself to us. A lot of times he does it through people like, like Moses. So God spoke to Moses. He spoke through Moses. And he's still speaking to us through his word. He's the same God. He still is. I am. He is Yahweh. He's still gracious, still compassionate, still forgiving iniquity rebellion. If only we repent and turn to him. Not only did he speak to us, but he came. He dwelt among us. And that hope, that changes everything. And that's what Paul is, is getting at in that passage. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face. For to this day, the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. If you're in this Old Covenant, if your yoke is heavy, right, you, you have a veil over your hearts. Pray that our hearts wouldn't have this veil over us. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So don't let there be a veil over your heart. Turn to Jesus. Know that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. This passage is, is beautiful. We see that we see so much of, of God's character and, and that he is willing to forgive us even though our sin is, is so costly. He paid for it. John Newton that wrote Amazing Grace, there's a famous quote from him that he said near the end of his life. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. So that's what I want our takeaway to be here. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more.